0: Let's get into God's word. The first reading is uh, Psalm 51, verses uh, 1 to 10. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I knew my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the world. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Our second reading is uh, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, once I can get there. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said that uh, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that you have a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You have heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thank you. Yes, now we're jumping down to the end of the chapter. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, an incredibly provoking and challenging passage for us this morning, so we better pray. (laughs) Gracious Father, uh, your word is a balm to our souls, but it's also like a surgeon's knife. Designed to penetrate to the very core of us. Not out of a desire to harm And so pray, Father, that today, as we are laid open, you would bring the grace and beauty and hope of the gospel to bear on us. So that we might be transformed. So we might be changed. So we might become the sort of people that you want us to be and who we long to be. we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're just joining us, uh, we are in a big series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon that Jesus preaches to his disciples at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And the Sermon on the Mount is, as we've been looking at and understanding, is a grand vision of what life is like in the kingdom of God. In other words, what life is like as a Christian. Jesus is, is trying to convince us that life in the kingdom, life as a Christian, is the only kind of life that truly brings flourishing. That can truly make you alive. And last week this, we discovered uh, the key to entering the kingdom, what it takes to get in. was Verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a super provoking statement and I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon from last week if you missed it. Uh, Jesus is trying to say that entering the kingdom doesn't merely require a change of behavior. Simply going from being a bad person to a good person. No, it requires a change of heart. Not just a change of behavior, but a change of heart. Verse 20 begins this new section of the sermon that ends with verse 48, which is why we skip forward to it at the end. This is a really important verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this has caused Christians to get very concerned and kind of feel awkward about this because we as Western modern people tend to think about perfect in empirical terms, as in we think about it as being flawless, as being faultless. But the Greek word that's behind that word perfect, and sorry, to use a little bit of Greek, uh, could well be translated whole or complete. Not flawless or that kind of perfect, but perfect in the sense of whole, complete, integrated, put together, not missing anything. So Jesus is actually saying that in the same way that God is Whole in, in that his, his thoughts, his words, and actions always perfectly align with each other. So, his desire is that his people would be the same, that we would live righteous lives, righteous in the sense of uh, uh, integrated moral lives that not just, um, aren't just moral on the outside, but moral on the inside, that our lives would be consistent in thought and word and deed. So true righteousness, there's lots of big words here, righteousness, true righteousness is not just being a moral person, it's being an integrated person. Someone who is righteous on the inside as well as on the outside. You all with me? this hopefully makes us realize just how radical Christianity really is. It's not what most people think about just trying to be a good person, to get God to give you the tick of approval so you can get into heaven. No, it's actually first realizing your need for a complete renovation. And then secondly, having God's power transform your inner life so that His goodness, His love flows out from you into your actions, into your lives. The direction of the gospel, the direction of Christianity, is from the inside out. As opposed to literally every other philosophy and religion, which is from the outside in. Be good, measure up, get close to God, and then you'll be changed. No, God says the, other. It's the opposite. God has to come on the inside of you. Renew you, renovate you, so that you can become new on the outside too. Now, Jesus' message is particularly aimed here at those who consider themselves to be good. Both religious people and secular people. It's designed to cut through and reveal to us that actually we aren't as good as we think we are. But it's not just a despondency kind of thing, kind of... Depressing. It's, it's actually designed uh, to come to know that they aren't good on the inside, that there is actually a power to truly change. Now, to do this, Jesus is going to give us six real life examples of what being a whole person looks like. Examples of, of being integrated. All of them have one thing in common they're all about relationships. So, we've called this uh, part one and part two flourishing with others. Because we know that unless our relationships are healthy, you can't experience flourishing. Conflicts and uh, unhealthy relationships means that your life isn't great. We all know that. And God knows that too. We're designed to be relational beings. And so Jesus is trying to say to us that uh, being an integrated, uh, whole person means that your relationships have to become healthy. They have to flourish. So as we go through these examples, we'll see two things. One is that these examples show us the true nature of sin, that we are far more sinful than we realize. And secondly, they show us the true pattern of righteousness that starts on the inside and works its way out. So true nature and the true pattern. Hopefully you'll see these as we go through. Now today we're just going to cover the first three. John Tran will do the second three uh, next week. So today we're going to look at Uh, Just some really light topics, uh, murder, adultery, and divorce. And let's be honest, each one of these could be a whole sermon just by themselves. So I'm going to be painfully brief, (laughs) but I hope that um, you can come chat to me if you want to know more. So let's begin with verse 21. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to follow along, or be on the screen. You have heard it said... To people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, we're gonna see this same structure repeated. Jesus says, starts by saying, You have heard it said. What's he doing? He's referring back to the law of Moses. Saying, You Jews have heard in the law of Moses this particular law. In this case, You shall not murder, part of the Ten Commandments. Very famous. Then he explains how he has now come to fulfill this law, how to make it deeper, how to make it more true, more complete. But I tell you, you will be judged for anger in just the same way as murder. Call someone rakah, which is the Aramaic word for moron, and you'll be judged. Call someone fool, and you are in danger of hell. This teaching is designed for maximum squirminess. We should feel very uncomfortable as we hear this. Because Jesus is taking aim at our tendency for self-justification. You might think, sure, I get angry sometimes. But at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not violent. Jesus' words expose the flaw in this thinking. Sure, absolutely. Better you get angry to murder someone. He's not saying that they're exactly the same. But he is saying that they're of the same quality. And they can have the same eternal consequences. Anger is simply violence in thought and word rather than deed. And actually, it is the catalyst that does lead to violent actions, even murder. Now, someone will say, come on, what's a bit of name-calling? We're Australians. We do it all the time. Words never hurt anyone. Jesus would say, far from it. Words are significant because they are the fruit of what you really believe and desire. I once read someone who said, uh, no one sins out of obligation. We sin because we want to. No one sins out of obligation. We sin because we want to. We wouldn't sin if there wasn't a payoff, if it didn't give us something. And I think in a twisted way, anger is actually enjoyable. It gives us the feeling of power over someone else. It amplifies our sense of how we have been wronged and how someone else deserves punishment. It diminishes that person's value and significance and worth in our own eyes, and that feels good because we feel superior. Anger is carrying out your own justice on someone in the secret place of your own imagination. That can lead to a desire for revenge, and that can lead to Violence, even murder. At the very worst, maybe just a bit of shouting. At best, maybe shouting and yelling. At worst, violence itself. See, when you're seeing red, when you're full of rage, you can't help but forget the truth about the person that you're thinking about. That though they may well have wronged you, you, you may well be in the right, they are still a person made in the image of God, loved by him just as you are their humanity becomes lessened in your eyes because anger diminishes compassion, love and humility and fans into flame rage, hatred and bitterness. So anger is violence without deeds. And anger can be kept hidden away. I know this is what I'm like. I'm not, no one would say I'm an angry person if you know me, but I can get angry. But I can be like a volcano that looks peaceful and dormant on the outside, but is raging on the inside. Is that like you? Some people are truly angry, but you just never know it. They're volcanoes that could blow at any moment, but they keep it all bottled up inside. People like that become experts at self justification. They say, well, at least I don't shout and scream. No one really knows about it, it's all on the inside. It doesn't hurt anyone. God would know. It. God says he knows about it. And yes, it hurts you, and by extension, it hurts the people he's made. Oh, are you actually terrible at keeping it hidden? You're a, you're not just you're not a dormant volcano, you're the one that blows its top at any second. Any motivation, any trigger, and you're off. Do you lash out the slightest provocation, and then do you justify it afterwards saying, "Well, they deserved it." They wronged me. I need justice. Jesus' warning uh, to both types of people, the dormant volcanoes and the active volcanoes, is that anger can lead to incredible danger because you could become, you can put yourself on the trajectory towards being cast into the fire of hell, in verse 22. That's really strong words. What's going on there? Well, uh, the word that Jesus used for hell there is Gehenna, uh, which was the name of this uh, garbage dump outside Jerusalem. And it was, it was famous, it was notorious, because it kind of was always burning. You know, some garbage dumps like that, the really big ones, they create their own heat, and it was just all, it's always flaming. So he uses this as a picture of what it looks like to be cut off from an experience of God's love and flourishing and experiencing um, the judgment of being part of a burning rubbish heap. Jesus says that anger at best cuts you off from flourishing and at worst disqualifies you from even entering the kingdom and it may leave you on the rubbish dump. Now, are we saying that Christians are like Zen robots, perfectly calm at all times? No, of course not. What sets Christians apart is not that we don't get angry. It's that we have incredible, deep resources to deal with anger when it does occur. We don't let it take root and grow. And verses 23 and 26 give us two examples of what that looks like through how to deal with conflict. Conflict is at the heart of anger because that's what leads us to this sense of injustice. And the first example is with others in the church. You say, I could never get angry with another Christian. Well, maybe not this church. But lots of other churches, I'm sure you could. No, it happens all the time. Church can be rife with conflict. And so Jesus is saying, in, uh, I won't read it out, but Jesus is saying that um, it's not just that if you have someone, something against someone else, you should go and reconcile. But even if you know that they have something against you, If actually you've been in the wrong, you should take the first step to reconcile. In other words, Christians, do whatever it takes. If you're in the middle of worship, halfway through, you know, king of kings, you've got to stop, go, reconcile, make peace. The family of God has this responsibility before each other to be free of conflict and to be people of peace to be people who reconcile. So that's within the church. The second example is in the rest of life. And Jesus picks this common occurrence of, in his day at least, of going to court. He imagines a person, even as they are walking together down the road to the courthouse with their accuser next to them, or the one that they're accusing, still trying to make a settlement, still trying to make peace, even on the way to the courthouse. You see what Jesus is doing? He's trying to say, even in the rest of the world, even outside the church, in a a culture which is full of rage, outrage, anger, bitterness, Christians should be radical agents of reconciliation. Putting aside our own preferences, even our own feelings of being mistreated or of, of injustice, in order to go and make peace, to recognize someone else as a beautiful creation of God, worthy not just worthy of your respect, but worthy of you doing whatever it takes to bring them back into relationship with you. And that's how the flourishing of God's kingdom extends out from us. Because wouldn't that be incredible? What if we demonstrated that rarest of qualities, overlooking an offense, in order to bring reconciliation. Friends, you cannot be whole as God is whole until anger is no longer rooted in your heart. Second example of of inner righteousness is in 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm not sure there's a more uncomfortable passage in all of Scripture. Certainly not many that are more directly relevant to our modern age. Because our culture has developed a very clear view on sexual expression. As long as you don't actually cheat on your partner... All forms of lust are permissible. That's what the culture says. As long as you don't actually do it, as long as you're just window shopping, as long as you don't buy, that's okay. The very easy justification, same as anger, well, at least I haven't acted on it. Jesus overturns this. He flips it completely on its head. To lust after someone with the eye is of the same quality as being with that person in body. See what I'm saying? doesn't have the same immediate consequence. Again, having thoughts of lust is much better than committing adultery with your body. But they are of of the same quality. They are both incredibly destructive. And God judges and sees the inside. Now, let's take a moment to um, explore exactly what lust is. Because again, our culture has defined it rather differently than the Bible. It's become this almost positive word. It refers to uh, a, li- a naughty little pleasure, just a little bit of indulgence, a naughty treat. But the Bible sees it very differently. Lust is an illicit desire. To own that which is not yours to own. Say that again. Lust is an illicit desire. To own that which is not yours to own. It actually comes under a broader category of covetousness, right? To covet something is to want it for yourself. Lust is the subcategory which, in the category of sexual desire, lust is coveting after someone else's beauty. It's seeing someone you find attractive, whether in person, whether in print, whether on a screen, and thinking, I want to own that. I want power over that. I want it to be mine to do with as I will. I want to get pleasure out of it. Can you see what this really is then? Not a harmless bit of gawking, but it is a desire to turn a person into an object, purely for your own gratification. See, lust is the opposite of love. Love is a holy desire to turn uh, to, to a holy desire for another's good, even at your own expense. Love is self-giving. It's about giving and sharing. Lust is about taking and having. Do you see the difference? So how is lust a type of adultery? That's what Jesus seems to be saying. Well, to that we have to delve a little bit into what God is. And God is covenantal. What does that mean? Well, a covenant is a relationship that comes with a promise of faithfulness to the other. Okay, A relationship that comes with a promise of faithfulness to the other. God uh, made a covenant with Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. He would love them, fight for them, protect them care for them, provide for them. And they would love him, worship him, and obey him. So God himself enters into covenants with people and he encourages them, invites them to enter into covenants with each other in the form of marriages. God has designed human sexuality to be the spiritual glue, spiritual and physical glue, glue of a marriage Covenant. In a marriage, a man and a woman promise faithfully to love each other. They say, I'm going to give myself to you. And actually not just spiritually, not just emotionally, but physically as well. It's not just about being romantic or just being monogamous even. It's actually saying, again, we're whole people, integrated people. I'm going to give all of myself to you as you give all of yourself to me. I'll promise faithfulness to you with my mind, with my body, with my thoughts, with my deeds, and you will as well. So adultery, in indeed, and lust in thought, destroys covenants. It redirects your power and your attention from selflessly loving your spouse to selfishly craving someone else. And that divides, It tears apart destroys. Now here it's natural to look for a few loopholes, so let's talk about that. Uh, What about single people? seems to be given a free pass for single people to be as lusty as they like because they're not married and so therefore it's not adultery. Well, let me tell you. Uh, If you spend your single years developing patterns of lusts, And then if later you get married, you will struggle to keep your attention from wandering. Because you've already had that rooted in your thoughts. In a way, it's unfaithfulness to your potential spouse, if not your current spouse. And not only that, but it's certainly being unfaithful to God because through your lust, you begin sinning against people he's made by objectifying them and devaluing them. So for single people, for married people, for men and for women, lust is a terrible, destructive force. But in the right context, sex is good. God is not anti-sex, as many would seek to say. Far from it. He's given it as this beautiful gift to be enjoyed and to be enjoyable, to be the the fuel for marriages that are uh, unified, that are fruitful, that bring children, that bring joy. But sex is so powerful and it's so good that if it's corrupted by sinful intent, it goes from being a powerful force for all that is good to being a powerful force at all that is destructive. God cares about sex and loves sex so much that he is prepared to protect its sanctity at all costs. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's no killjoy. He's simply pouring his loving desire for God's people to flourish by making it abundantly clear that lust is something that destroys flourishing. And so he doesn't pull his punches. We see the pattern, right? Uh, You've heard it said, now I say to you, and then some examples. And the examples are meant to say to us, we must do whatever it takes to get rid of lust. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Is he saying that literally? No, otherwise there'd be a lot of single-armed uh, Christians around, single-eyed, and there's not. So what does that mean? Well, I don't think we should take this literally, it's, but it's a strong metaphor deliberately used to give us a sense of urgency. That anything that gives opportunity for lust to take hold and grow has to be getting rid of. Whatever it takes. It's a radical cutting off whether it's fessing up to a trusted friend, stopping a relationship, getting accountability software for your devices, removing yourself from situations, even getting help from a professional. Even if it causes you pain, even if it causes you embarrassment, even if it costs you financially, Jesus says, do it. Don't wait. Do it. It's my great grief that sexual impurity has been a part of my story. And I don't mind telling you guys that I have done every single one of the things that I just mentioned. And that they were painful, that they were embarrassing sometimes. I never had cause to regret it. See, again, seeing the, the similarity with the anger thing, Jesus isn't saying that Christians never lust. If he were, we'd be in very big trouble. He's saying that Contra our society, the world out there, we fight a continuing battle against lust in all its forms. We affirm that it's a sin, that it destroys relationship with God and others, that it stops flourishing, and it has no place amongst God's people. Friends, you cannot experience true flourishing until you stop lust from being rooted in your heart. So we've done two bitty big ones. You all with me? Still with me? Good. Uh, we've got a third one, divorce. And I'm going to be very brief on this one, not because it's not important, but because it's so important that I just can't possibly do it justice here and now. I'm going to say a few things, but more than happy to have a chat with you at the end. For, let me say this. Uh, one, one writer from Jesus' time remarked that getting a divorce was so easy that all it took really was for a guy to say to a judge, "My wife." Book, uh, my wife. Contemporary of Jesus said, "It was ridiculously easy and ridiculously common, and men had most of the power here because most divorces were made by men at the expense of the woman. Women in those in the first century were very vulnerable to um, without a husband, were really cut off from being provided for, or protected, right." So very commonly, divorces were obtained simply because the man had set his sights on someone else. Jesus is so committed to God's design for relationships of faithfulness and love that he can't allow divorce to be a way, an excuse for pursuing lust. Jesus isn't saying that divorce isn't allowable under lots of different circumstances, nor that God despises divorced people, nor that they can't get remarried. That's a big topic, but I'll leave it for another day. He's simply saying that anybody who pursues a divorce simply because they are looking for someone new because they're sick of the old wife or husband and wanting to move on, are in extreme danger of sinning against their spouse and against God. So as we look over these three examples, we see that they say the same thing. We are more sinful than we realize because God looks to the heart and our heart motivations are deceptive and we're natural self-justifiers. We convince ourselves we're good, we're okay. And my hope right now is that the Holy Spirit has revealed your heart to you, that he has laid you bare. Maybe it's an, a- an issue of anger. Maybe it's an issue of lust. Maybe it's something else entirely, and, and in an inner attitude that you just know doesn't match up with the types of people that God wants. And I hope that every one of us here has their conscience and who among us has never lusted. So for all of us here, this is a very important moment. This is... The most important part of the sermon, so this is the time to tune back in. There's a few ways that this could go right now, but only one way that leads to flourishing. Some here know their hearts are not right, and so right now you are overcome with a sense of guilt, tried to stop bad habits, to overcome old ways, and nothing's worked. You just repeat the same thing over and over again. So Jesus' words are like boiling water on a sunburn. (laughs) and you're falling deep into despair. That's some of you. Some of you are even in a worse spot because you're the sort of person with enough willpower that you can actually change your behaviour. And I've seen this many times. People who have an an issue with porn, but just stopped one day. Just stopped. Grew out of it. Or had an issue with anger, but got some counselling, did some anger management, and changed their ways. People who... Changed the external behavior, but didn't change their hearts. And so what happens is they simply change one vice for another. The lust gets redirected, the lust for sexual expression gets redirected to a lust for success, for example. So they throw themselves into their work. Or the anger that's just buried down at one uh, someone, another human being, it's redirected towards anger for God and remains buried both would feel immense pride that they were able to change i did it i changed myself and that's what the pharisees were like the religious elite of jesus day they were had this exceptional ability to mold their own behavior and their hearts became full of pride and superiority so we need a way forward that lifts up those who are despondent and guilt-ridden but also, and, and frees those who are stuck in guilt and shame, but also humbles those who think they all need hope. Jesus offers us the strength and power to do what he asks, to be whole people. Psalm 51 is perhaps my favorite psalm. It's a song that uh, the mighty uh, King David wrote. After he'd been caught in murder and adultery. Not anger and lust, but he literally killed someone to cover up his own affair. So what happens? Does David uh, fade into despair and guilt and shame? Or does he pull himself up by his bootstraps and kind of keep going? No, he comes before his God, a broken man, and asks for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He assumed that the God of mercy could and would forgive him. Not that he would not he would avoid facing the immediate consequences of his actions. No, he would face the pain every day of what he'd done, but he would not fear the eternal consequences because he knew that they would somehow be paid for. Then he prays, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you see? David preaching the Sermon on the Mount hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He knew the secret of flourishing. He knew that he needed not just new behaviors, but a new heart, a reviving of his insides, a cleansing on the deep within. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is what was going to sustain him both inwardly and outwardly. He needed to see God. He needed to have a vision of who God is in his perfection, in his holiness, in his wholeness. He needed a vision of what God is doing in the world and in him. And This is the key to responding to God laying bare our hearts. It's actually following in this pattern. Yes, coming before God in confession as what? The poor in spirit. Those who have raged with anger to ask for mercy. And all of us to ask God to blot out the transgressions of our hearts and make them pure again. And we have greater reason to trust God in this than David did. Because that in order to make us whole the way God is whole, Jesus allowed himself to be torn apart on the cross. He was cut off and left to die outside the city, right next to that flaming garbage dump. A powerful image that he experienced, the horrors of hell. He went through hell for us so that we might come into his kingdom. So we can rejoice in forgiveness, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep your sin goes. The the price Jesus paid goes deeper. His grace goes deeper. He opens our eyes to the truth that we are forgiven and we can revel in that forgiveness. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just forgive something, but he lifts us up into something. He shows us that Jesus' kingdom and the ways of his kingdom are so far better than the ways of sin. He has shown us mercy so that we might know that mercy is better than anger. And he has shown us love, so that we might know that love is better than lust. And so as recipients of love and mercy, we can now live into the way of Jesus. Not becoming perfect immediately. Some of you have perhaps a long way to go. I know I do. But as recipients of love and mercy, we can live into Begin to live into that love and that mercy and extend love and nurturing in our hearts this new reality, this new vision of flourishing that captures us and becomes for us something more beautiful and with a greater payoff than sin does, than anger does, than lust does, than anything else does. Friends, this is a message that radical change in your life is possible, but only if it's powered by an even more radical Christ.